Hello, welcome to One Square Mile in North East Fife, a podcast from the University of St Andrews. On a windy mile stretch of the east coast of Scotland, some of the most extraordinary events, debates and collaborations have occurred, bringing world-changing ideas and knowledge. Central to these for over 600 years has been the community of the University of St Andrews. St Andrews is home to some of the world's leading thinkers and innovators. Our podcast invites you to learn more about the inspiring work that we do here. Each episode, we'll talk to one of our academics about their research and why it should matter to you. I'm Ruth Sanderson. My guest today is Stephen Reicher, Bishop Wardlaw Professor at the School of Psychology and Neuroscience here at St Andrews. But listen, let's jump straight in here. What is behavioural psychology? There are all these terms which people use nowadays, like behavioural psychology. I, I just call myself a psychologist. I'm a social psychologist. So I'm interested in the interface between the individual uh, and the social, the way, if you like, that culture and social structure impacts on who we are, what we think, and what we do. So how does the out there in the world enter in here in the head? And there's a very famous uh, social psychologist called Kurt Levine, uh, who said what a social psychologist is interested in is understanding the social structuration of mind, how, as I say, our intimate thoughts and feelings and desires are shaped and structured by the, the nature of the world we live in. Now tell me then about the world you grew up in and why did you get interested in this field of study in the first place? Actually, I was destined to study medicine. My family uh, were you know, the typical uh, Central European Jewish diaspora. My, my dad um, fled Poland very late after the Nazi invasion. Uh, my mum and her family fled Germany after Hitler came uh, to power. Um, and they came to the UK. I was born in Devon. And they wanted their two sons, I have a brother, uh, to be a lawyer and uh, to do medicine. I I didn't really think about it, but I kind of assumed that, okay, I'll do it. Um, And I still remember the the day on a bus on the Hills Road in Cambridge when I said to my mum, mum, you know that place I've got in medicine? And she beamed and she said, yes. I said, well, I'm turning it down. Um, And she she wailed. She wailed and told me how I was uh, destroying my life and her life and everybody's life. And I think everybody who's on that bus will probably uh, remember it. Because in the end, I mean, number one, I have a very simple philosophy, which is that insides should stay on the inside. And I was just fascinated by by human psychology. I went to Bristol, Bristol University. And when I was there, I encountered a charismatic uh, professor, a man called Arnold Tarshvel, who was a uh, himself a Holocaust survivor. He'd been um, actually in France during the war, and um, he'd been in a prisoner of war camp. And all the time, you know, in his head, as if they discover that I'm Jewish, I'll go into a very different type of uh, camp. And Henri was fascinated, as many scholars were, actually, as probably most European social thought uh, was, with with the question of why could so many people be destroyed, be killed, be be marked for murder, not because of anything they'd done, but simply because of who they were. But the really fascinating thing about Arnie's work, and it's what has marked my work ever since, was that 
it would be easy to end up as pessimistic and see this as just an example of how groups are bad for us. After all, you know, the Holocaust was a group phenomenon. It was about your group membership. Things happened to you, again, as I say, not because of anything you'd done. Um, even Jews who didn't see themselves as Jews and were fully assimilated, they were marked by uh, the Nazis as Jewish, and if they were marked as Jewish, they were marked for murder. So it would be easy to see groups as the problem. And actually, the dominant uh, perspective does see groups as a problem. But Henri realised that groups aren't only the problem, they're also the solution. So if racism is a group phenomenon, so the civil rights movement was a collective movement. It was a group movement to challenge racism. And if sexism is a group-level problem, you are treated as you are, not because of who you are, but because you're a woman, um, so the suffragette and the women's movement was a collective movement. Uh, and you could say the same of uh, discrimination against uh, gay people and the Stonewall movement. So, so groups, and this is what is so fascinating, groups are, are, are at the same time the problem and the solution. And understanding that complexity and the importance of that question. It, you know, it touched you know, my history, it touched what I was interested in, and I, I became hooked. So at some level then, your, or well, it seems at a very deep level, your parents' experience really fed in to your decisions then about your, your future path. Do, do you think you were aware of that? I mean, it's quite interesting that, you know, when you look at, um, at, at, at psychology and social psychology in particular, the number of, of, of Jewish um, uh, scholars there are. Um, actually, there's a very famous sociologist called Zygmunt Bauman who says that all post-war social thought is dominated by the question of the Holocaust. Because although we say never again, the tragedy is it happens time and time again. Um, you know, whether we're talking about Rwanda, whether we're talking about the former Yugoslavia, whether we're talking about what's going on at the moment in uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea and so on. I mean, it happens again and again and uh, again, you look at some of the most famous social psychologists, possibly the most famous is a man called Stanley Milgram, who did some very famous uh, uh, studies on obedience. Well, he talks about how the question in his mind about obedience came from trying to understand how could people obey orders to slaughter uh, people. Now, you know, I was born obviously after the war. I grew up, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But I remember very much being being obsessed by the question of the Holocaust, asking how could it happen? How could one um, uh, live through it? What was the experience like? How could one assume that states and laws were right when you could have a country whose laws obligated people to slaughter others. Did your parents talk to you much about it? One of the things about the Holocaust is that anybody who survived felt ambivalent about it because if they survived, it meant that others didn't. So, for instance, my father got out of Poland, but a lot of the family didn't. It was immensely painful to talk about and very difficult, uh, I think, to talk about. And also there was that sense of if I talk about it, will people understand and will they, you know, will they appreciate my experience? So getting details from my father was difficult. And in time, I wish I knew more. I mean, his was a fascinating story. So, you know, they managed to get out in, in 1940, when already the Nazis uh, were occupying, uh, through contacts they had, they managed to get a, a visa um, 
to go to Venezuela. That allowed them to, uh, to get out. Um, but to get from Germany into Italy, they also had to have documentation proving that they were uh, uh, Catholic. So they managed to get a Catholic marriage certificate. But of course, if they'd been found out having those different, uh, that different documentation, they would immediately uh, have been killed. Um, so they managed to get out into uh, to Italy, to Trieste. They managed to get to Istanbul. I'd have loved to have heard what, what, what was Istanbul like in 1940, uh, 41. Then they... Um, uh, they went to Palestine, and my father went to school. He was still young. Uh, he joined the army, and then I love this. I think this is this. this he tells the story that one day the uh, the air force came along um, to recruit, um, and uh, they asked for anybody who wanted to join the air force as opposed to the army. And my dad put his hand up and said, "Well, look, if I'm going to do my fighting, I might as well do it comfortably sitting down." Uh, so that you know, la laziness saved him because the army unit he was in fought up through Italy and in Monte Cassino, where most of them were slaughtered. Um, so eventually, uh, he became a pilot and he came to the UK and he arrived. Imagine he arrived from sunny Palestine to Ochtamuchti oh in November under canvas. Uh, he was courted in, 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 in the Cocody Palais de Danse. Um, so again, I'd have loved to hear more. I have a few photos, a few documents, um, but no, I'd love to know more. And he grew up in Devon. So how odd then that it's come full circle and you've come back to this part of the world. When did you first arrive in St Andrews and what did you think? Well, my first job as postdoc in the early 80s uh, was in Dundee. In fact, and I had some very good friends who were in uh, St Andrews, so I used to come over to St Andrews uh, quite frequently. Now, um, uh, Dundee and St Andrews might be only twelve miles apart, but they are a bit of a universe apart. So, uh, so I must admit, I, I started off seeing St Andrews from the perspective of Dundee. At which point, it was I, I think I think probably the word was weird. In what way weird? Tell me, in what way weird? <laughs> you know, I mean. Uh, all the images, you know, uh, red gowns and 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 you know all the uh, uh, you know the old buildings. I mean, I was doing work on delinquency in the back of Dundee. You know, in 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 these estates where in the early eighties, the you know the Thatcher recession of the early eighties, probably eighty percent of people were unemployed. I mean, it was a completely different world. I mean, I loved the political culture of Scotland. And I love, I mean, I love the outdoors. I love, you know, I, I love cycling, I love walking. So I, so when a job came up in St Andrews, I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. I'll be here uh, for a few years. That was 25 years ago. And now I'm pretty sure that, you know, uh, I, I can book my burial plot in, in uh, around here somewhere because, um, uh, because I think it's wonderful. Um, and I think one of the things that makes it uh, such a good place is precisely the sense of community. Um, uh, small enough so that you know people, um, small enough so that the hierarchy is relatively flat. I mean, in big universities, you know, to get access to, say, a, 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 a vice principal or a principal is almost impossible. In, in, in St Andrews, it's very different. Um, and I think that's tremendously important. And when, a number of years ago, I was, uh, I was head of school, um, I became aware of the fact that you know, all the senior members of staff were getting offers from elsewhere. I mean, at one level, you'd want them to, because if they were good, you'd want other people to want them. And bigger places could offer them more money and more facilities. And nearly every single person said no. And the reason why they said no was because this is a good place. 
it's a good it's good to be in a community where people are decent to each other and people respect each other and you don't you know you don't have that sense of of hierarchy and i think if we lose that it's not only a moral thing i think the success of st andrews would very quickly evaporate and people would very quickly uh, take up those larger offers elsewhere. So I do think that St Andrews is a very good example of the importance of community. Well, let's come on to the pandemic, the global COVID crisis. It's fair to say the past 18 months has been bananas. Did you, in your research before this, ever model a scenario like this? And if you did, what did you think might happen? First of all, this is probably an odd thing to say, but I do remember all the way through my life, I felt how lucky I am in that, you know, I have grown up never being in a war, never having to move country, never having my house bombed. Um, And I look at all my family, you know, by the time that they were in their 40s. My grandparents, my mother's parents, had lived through probably three revolutions, the the Russian Revolution of 1905, the Russian Revolution of 1917, then the German revolutions of of, of, of the 1920s. They'd lived through the First World War. They'd lived through the rise of Nazism. They'd lived through the Second World War. I'd had none of that. I always think it's a bit like playing Monopoly and going around the board for a whole game and never landing on on, on a hotel. We're incredibly blessed. And while in no way do I want to underplay you know, how awful the pandemic has been by so, for so many people, at the same time, it's not like you know, being a war where we are bombed out, not like being herded into camps, not like you know, uh, uh, you know, vast numbers of young people going off uh, to die. So, first of all, I think there is a danger of turning what's happened to us to be the greatest tragedy in history. It's a huge crisis, it's a huge tragedy, it has particular impact on the most vulnerable, and has emerged and 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 highlighted the inequalities in our society, but. Uh, at the same time, I think some historical perspective is important. For me, on the one hand, what it's shown is the importance of human behaviour and hence the analysis of human behaviour. The critical question is, how will people change their behaviour and their interactions? Um, before the pandemic, we had about 12 interactions with different people per week. Now it's down to about four. If we went up to 12, transmission would take off completely. So those behavioural questions are completely central. The other side of the story is, I think it has illustrated the way in which the wrong psychology has often dominated, certainly at the level of the UK government, and how dangerous that is. Because it's been assumed that the public and in particular groups, are the problem. That you put people in a crisis and you put people together and they will panic and they'll misbehave and they won't put up with, uh, with restrictions. And that's led the government, in many ways, as I say, to see the public as the problem, to, uh, in many ways, to berate us. Actually, what I think the pandemic has shown is how powerful and resilient people are precisely when they get together. This is why I've been involved in the advisory groups. My previous work had looked at uh, people's behaviour in emergencies. And what you find is that when we have 
if you like, we face a common danger, a common fate, a common crisis. It leads to a sense of shared identity, of we, of community. And we stop seeing people as you, as other, and we see people as part of that community, as part of, if you like, our extended communal sense of self. And that leads us to think that others are not there uh, to get in our way, to be a danger to that, they're there for us, to support us. And that sense of support enhances coping and enhances well-being. So rather than seeing the public as the problem, the key question for me, the key behavioural question is, how do you nurture that sense of collectivity? And how do you, if you like, mobilise that sense of solidarity that arises from it so that people help each other and people have a sense of, look, it might be hard out there, but I can cope because others are there for me. We've got four separate devolved governments making decisions within, um, within the UK. So how did that play out in terms of... Um, of people's behaviour, because surely people behave uh, when that example comes from the top, no? In my work, I've done lots of things around this issue of how groups behave. Um, And one of the things I've done is to do work on leadership. Now, leadership is often seen in very individualistic terms. It's about great men. It is normally gendered. It's about men uh, with uh, remarkable qualities um, you know, they've got the right stuff. And if only we knew what the right stuff was, and we could pick the right leaders, we'd be okay. Now, that forgets something. It forgets that leadership is not just about leaders, it's about followers. So leaders don't achieve anything. It's the followers who do the work. The leaders might motivate them, but you need followers. What's more, it's not just about leaders and followers, but always leaders and followers within a particular group. A leader is a leader of a nation. Uh, of a political party, a religion, or whatever. And leaders of groups you don't belong to, even if they're loved by that group, you know, you can't make any sense of why they're loved because you don't like them at all. I mean, you know, Margaret Thatcher loved by some, but those who were not of that group uh, couldn't understand it at all. You can name basically any leader and have that argument. Exactly, you could. So the point is we need to understand leadership as a group process. And leaders are listened to and respected first of all if they seem to be of us and secondly if they seem to be for us acting for us now the danger is and again I think there have been a number of serious errors in this by the government that if you create a division so there is a sense of the leadership the politicians as them as opposed to the population us then you undermine influence uh, because uh, one of the first laws of influence is precisely that influence is greater from those who are seen as in-group members. And I think we've seen a number of examples of that. I mean, the first and the most uh, famous example was the Dominic Cummings affair. Not because of what Dominic Cummings did. That was an individual. It's when the government, when Boris Johnson supported him, it became systemic and it seemed to be one law for them and one law for us. But again, there are other ways in which you create that division. If you berate people, right, if you say um, those who don't get vaccinated are selfish, okay, you, you position them as them, 
how then are you going to influence them? If you blame people, you know, um, Matt Hancock talking about people killing uh, their grannies. Again, if you blame people, you create a division between them and us. So, as I say, one of the first things a government should be doing is to nurture a sense of shared identity, both amongst the community and between themselves and the community. And I don't think that's been done very well in England, at least. Were you surprised at the level of, sort of national compliance there was during during the early wave of COVID? Well, I hate the word compliance, because compliance is one of those terms which suggests that people are like sheep. They just go along with what they're told. I prefer uh, something like adherence. Um, people were doing the right thing, often despite the government, not because of the government. So, for instance, going back to the Cummings affair, one of the fascinating things there was that some of the people who were most uh, angry at what had happened were most likely to adhere, not because of the government, but just despite the government, because they believed that they needed to show what was the right thing to do. The second thing to say is that throughout the pandemic, I mean, almost daily, I've been asked by the media, you know, will people go along with, with things? Will people break the rules as if the public are the problem? Right? And I say again and again, actually what you find is on the whole, the public have been ahead of the government at every single step, wanting action to be taken earlier, um, uh, being concerned about restrictions being um, uh, removed too early. If I had to do a, a score sheet, I would say that actually the public have done pretty well. This has not been a story of a, a psychologically deficient public um, uh, letting down a heroic government. It's been precisely the opposite, actually. It's been a, uh, a community acting uh, with, with remarkable levels, I think, of, uh, of concern for each other, often let down at the UK level, at least, not talking about Scotland to the same degree, let down by a government which hasn't understood and hasn't realised and hasn't harnessed the power of community. So... In your role on the SAGE subcommittee um, as a behavioural psychologist, how much impact do you have on what the government does? How do you get the government to listen to you? How do you say you're you're making these mistakes on, uh, on the leadership level, but this is what you need to do nationally, and do they listen? And how do you make that argument? When they've got a political agenda... And you've got an agenda that, that's based around, around science. What we can do as scientists is we can say, this is the consequence of this, or these are the risks that come from doing things in this particular way. But how seriously you take those risks, or how much you balance one risk against another, is actually a moral and political question with moral and political criteria determine it. And if you just say you're following the science, what you do is you hide those decisions. I mean, if, if the government said to us, well, actually, we're more concerned with um, you know, economic performance than you know, a number of people who die, well, let them say it and let them be open about it. Do you think there's a certain element of the government trying to scapegoat scientists? I, I mean, politics... It's a game of accountability. It's a game of blame. It's a game of saying, you know, the, the, the problem lies uh, not with us, but with them. I mean, that comes out really clearly from my work on, 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 on crowd psychology. Whenever there is a, a, a riot, say, it's a crisis for the government. 
okay? Because one of the first duties of government is to secure the social order. That's why we put up with laws and restrictions so we can go about our everyday business in safety. That uh, goes back to, 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 to Hobbes. Um, and so if there is a disruption of the social order, it raises a question about the basic legitimacy of government. So when a riot happens, what you always find at the time is the government saying, oh, it's nothing to do with us, nothing to do with inequality, nothing to do with how the state behave or how the police behave. It's something about just crowds being mad and people in crowds being mad or bad people getting together and rioting. All these explanations manage accountability and blame. Five, ten years later, right, when it was a previous government who was accountable, everybody says, well, of course the 1981 riots were to do with inequality, and of course they were to do with racism. Uh, but then what you always find is people saying, yes, the last ones were, but this one is different. This one uh, isn't due to us, it's due to them. So managing blame and managing accountability, especially when it comes to these really important processes, yes, of course, is completely central to the business of government. They're, they're politics. That's that's the nature of the beast. So the answer is yes, then. That was a very long way. <laughs> I am an academic. Uh, a very, very long way of saying yes. This uh, past 18 months is unprecedented for, for, for us in our lifetime. I think it's fair to say. Um, will this be just a fascinating test bed for psychologists, for scientists, for medics? What do you think the legacy of this time is going to be? And what have you found already? What conclusions have you drawn already? Because you've been... you've published quite a few papers during this stage Stephen yeah I've, I've never worked as, as hard in my life because I mean I still have a day job I mean part of what I've been interested in is uh, going back to the issue of, of, of um, uh, group psychology are those two sides of group psychology are number one to understand the power of a community united but also the toxic nature of a community divided. And one of the problems, in, I mean, pandemics can be the best of worlds in, in terms of people coming together. They can be the worst of worlds if you begin to point to other groups as the problem. So historically in pandemics, you've often seen increased division. You've even seen pogroms and genocide. So in the Black Death, for instance, there were huge numbers of, of pogroms against Jewish communities who were blamed um, for the Black Death. Over 600 Jewish communities uh, destroyed in one day in Strasbourg, over 2,000 Jewish people burnt to death. So one of the things I really worry in a narrative of blame is that you begin then to blame particular groups and that leads to social division. So that's one thing uh, that concerns me. But the second is the understanding that actually the self-organization of communities is remarkably powerful. I mean, one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was the formation of local groups, um, including over 4,000 mutual aid groups, including uh, and involving over 12 million people. But what I think it shows us is that in terms of looking at society and relationship between state and people, perhaps in the past we've either had the state doing things or we've had people... Uh, organizing themselves, uh, often when the state cut back on support. I think there is a model which you begin to see about, you know, government scaffolding and supporting the self-organizations of, 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 of communities as, as a way 
of uh, you know providing services, not asking people to do it for themselves because you know because they, they, there's no welfare state, but a welfare state which doesn't which isn't paternalistic and imposes on people, but but, but with works with self-organizing communities. So I think there are really interesting and exciting models of society. And if I could just add one more, I'll come at this by just talking about some of the research that I've done is that's been most fun. Academics just want to have fun. As the Cindy Lauper song. It's not just girls. Yeah. Um, And so we were doing this work on on the largest collective event in the world. It's an incredible event. It's this Hindu uh, religious festival in North India in Allahabad. Happens every year, but it's on a 12-year cycle. So every year you get millions over the month of the festival. Every six years, you get about 20 or 30 million. Every 12 years, you get over 100 million people, including on some days, 20 or 30 million. I remember one day being on a slight hill and and it happens that the reason why it happens in this place is it's the confluence of the Yamuna and the Ganges rivers the two great religious rivers and being on a slight hillock and around me were about 25 million people five times the population of Scotland sounds like Tesco before the first lockdown anyway (laughs) and uh and in many ways it is everything that should be bad for your health so it's incredibly crowded, and the literature suggests crowding is bad for you. It's infernally noisy. It's at a noise level that should cause you harm after 45 minutes. It lasts for a month. And as for the hygiene, well, if you put your feet in the Ganges and something floats past, don't ask what it is. Okay. So this thing should be awful for your health. But we studied it and we found, actually, yes, people get infected. But overall... It's good for your health because being in a group and having a sense of being connected to other people and having that sense of intimacy and support gives you a much greater sense of uh, positivity and a much greater sense of being able to cope with the challenges of the world and and reduces stress, um, which is good for mental health and physical health as well. And and, And there's been a whole literature recently showing the power of feeling part of a group, not just personal relationships to family, but feeling part of a group to your physical health. Uh, Social isolation is more harmful to our health than a bad diet than smoking and drinking. If you ask people what's bad for your health, they're always going to say smoking, drinking, but it's isolation. And so we live in an ever more atomized society. We live in a society where we're divided. We live in a society where people uh, move for jobs and so break up family uh, units. We live in a world which stops talking about communities and starts talking about customers and consumers as sort of a neoliberal world. One of the things that is tremendously important to me is moving up the question of uh, isolation and building community up the agenda as a critical social but above all a health intervention that's another of the fundamental questions about the way we organize our society which comes out of the pandemic for me how does that happen though how do you do that that's a huge question i mean i do think um i mean first of all i think it does mean sort of reversing uh you know the tendency of recent years for every relationship to be seen as an economic relationship the notion of people as isolated uh consumers is, uh, I think, is really toxic. And let me give you a very concrete example of that. I started off doing work on emergencies many years ago with uh, one of my colleagues, John Drury, um, who's also been very prominently involved during the pandemic. And John and I 
what, wanted to see what would happen uh, in an emergency. And we reasoned that uh, what would happen is if you were in a group and there was an emergency, so something like, say, a fire on the underground, um, let's say you were a group of football supporters, then if there was a fire, you might coordinate far better with people, you might support people, and rather than pushing and shoving and blocking up the exits, you might get out better. Okay, so we built a virtual reality simulation of a fire on King's Cross Underground, and we gave people various scenarios. The problem we found was that people nearly always helped each other. And the reason for that, that's where we came across this, this notion that actually what's happening is not that people are part of a group already which determines whether they help each other, but the emergency forms people into a group, okay, um, which then leads people to help each other. So actually what we were seeing is that the emergent group was overwhelming uh, the pre-existing question of, you know, were you, uh, you know, fans of a football team or just individuals travelling home? There was one exception. In all the studies we did, there was one exception. And that is, if we gave people a scenario of, you are going to the sales, okay, then they would still rush out, try to get the um, exits first. They would jam up the exits and they wouldn't help each other. And that meant that when you look at the amount of time it took them to get out, it was far longer and they were far more likely to die. And it was a beautiful example that if you position people as consumers in opposition to each other, Okay, that can have truly toxic effects. And I think we've built, built a toxic society where we've atomized and individualized people. And again, we need to go back to understand the power of community at every level, including in terms of physical and mental health. So what's next for you? What's the next area of study? <laughs> what's the next paper about, David? Oh, oh God, uh, that's a very good question. I mean, as I say, there are so many in interesting questions. I mean, one of the things... Uh, that I'm also involved in at the moment is the independent advisory group uh, to the policing of COP26. Uh, um, because one of the things that has always motivated me is that I think, I think, I, I don't like the word protest because that's always seen as negative. Somebody else is saying something and you're protesting against it. No, it's an alternative voice. It's an alternative uh, viewpoint on, on climate you could argue that it's the public who are saying the sensible things and the governments are protesting that, oh, we can't do this and we can't do that. So I don't like the word uh, 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 protest. But I do think that the ability of every group in society to express its voice in public, to contest the voice of governments, is really important. And one of the problems is that if collective events, if uh, you know, mass events... Uh, become confrontational, actually it undermines the democracy of protest. It means that families aren't going to come along with children. It means disabled people aren't going to be uh, able to participate. So I believe really strongly in inclusive uh, participation in, in, in mass events, in, in crowd events. Uh, and that has implications for the ways in which they are uh, policed and the way in which police facilitate people to express their voice rather than see their role as limiting people. So I think COP26 is going to be a fascinating mm -hmm. test case of that. So in the immediate term, that's that's one of my research priorities. So how do you then, you see, I'm fascinated by this role that you have um, as a scientist who 
is a world leader in what he does and how you use that responsibility because it is a responsibility to be an expert in something and to be a voice of, of reason and knowledge. How do you use that responsibility to, for example, influence policing bills or influence the government in their policy? What Physically, how does that happen? What's, do you call them up? Do you write a letter? Do you, you know, talk to a paper? How do you do that? One of the problems about the academic world is, again, we individualise it. Individuals get plaudits. Individuals get promotions. Individuals get prizes. Whereas the accomplishment is nearly always collective. Right? Your, your greatest accomplishment is always going to be your students and working with your students. And after a while, you can't quite remember who said what when and who had that idea. It, it emerges between people. And I've been incredibly lucky um, with the people I've worked with. So I talked about my colleague John Drury, who, with whom um, I did work on uh, emergencies. In terms of the work on uh, policing, I did, I did a lot of work with my colleague. Uh, he was my student. Now, you know, it's the teacher taught uh, Clifford Stott. And we started off doing research on um, how violence in crowds is not because crowds are inherently violent, it always takes two to tango. It's an interaction. You've got to look as much at the policing as uh, the behaviour of the crowd. So we looked at the nature of the interactions which led to conflict, and then we made suggestions for what could be done to mitigate that. Now, the thing about that work is it was it was useful. Um, it, it, it didn't just say, oh, well, these are the broad social conditions under which this happened, and the police say, well, that's fine, but what can we do about it? This helped in think about the strategies and the technologies and the training and the philosophies and the centrality of human rights to those philosophies which which shaped policing and, and Clifford played a massive role in reshaping uh, uh, policing uh, uh, what I think of as facilitative policing that policing is not there to stop people on the assumption they're going to do things uh, that are wrong but rather policing is there to facilitate um, the, the human right to uh, uh, to peaceful protest okay and 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 actually uh, you know many police uh, are very committed to that interestingly actually uh, a lot of the police in in, in in Scotland many of them have had experience in in Northern Ireland where these ideas I think are are particularly pertinent um, and then you begin to work with people and then you begin to uh, uh, you know plan things together so it, it takes time um, I'm trying to think when we did the first paper it was probably about 25 years ago but you know things percolate but it's that sort of long tail it's not a, a red phone to someone you know in Whitehall to say listen this is what you need to do it's actually that gentle manipulation from this side from that side over the course of years and years so it might be that uh, you know uh, those at the very centre don't listen, but there are wonderful people. I mean, there are wonderful um, you know, civil servants in, in government who are totally committed. Things in particular departments, there's really good work. I mean, it's quite interesting. Boris Johnson came out and said, look, let's have more stop and search. And the police response was extremely robust because they know that, I mean, stop and search in a crude way is actually counterproductive. We, uh, we did a big project around the 2011 uh, riots. And one of the biggest predictors of which boroughs rioted and which didn't was the uh, level 
of stop and search in the previous 30 months. Now, the police understand that. And, and, and so I think, I think you can, even if at one level it seems frustrating and you're feeling ignored, there are always going to be people there and they're going to take up ideas. And, and you know, things have consequences in unanticipated ways. So, you know, it might look bleak, but afterwards somebody might have picked up an idea and it might have led to an initiative, might make a change. And I think in the end... You know, all of us are tiny, tiny, tiny cogs in a, in, in, you know, in a, in a big machine. You do what you can, and you hope, you know, something germinates. Thank you to Stephen Reicher for sharing his insights and explaining the work he's doing here at the University of St Andrews. And thank you to you for listening. Look out for our next episode when we'll be talking to Professor Karen Gentry from the School of International Relations. You can find all our episodes through your favourite podcast hosting service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do like, share and review. And never miss an episode by clicking subscribe to One Square Mile. Thank you.